If everybody would be so kind to take their seats. Let's give our featured speaker from Fresno Bear a big round of applause. How y'all doing? My name's Bear and I am a stepchild. Um, well, that's stepchild, man. Well, everything Kirby said, I'm the opposite of. So, you got it, let's go. Uh, I gotta tell y'all, I'm a little nervous. Um, I was at, Billy doesn't believe that. Uh, Billy and Holden. You know, I walk around the run site and I'm a cocky son of a gun. Uh, I gotta tell you first, I cuss, so if that offends anybody, sorry. Uh, and, uh, but you know, I get someplace new and I'm painfully shy. So, uh, bear with me, please. Uh, no pun intended. But, um, you know what? It wasn't very long in my life when, when I absolutely knew I was different. Um, I knew from a very, very early age that I wasn't exactly going to be the person my mama thought. And, uh, or my dad, uh, differently than Kirby, my parents were married for many, 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 many years. Um, even though we asked them not to be. George and Norma, they hung in there. God bless them. And, um, yeah. uh, so I, I knew I would, I would never give my, my mother grandbabies, and I knew that I would never be a secretary for my dad, because that was his life ambitions for me to be a secretary. And, uh, this is me. Um, actually, I'm a paralegal. I can come close, huh? Yeah, I'm so close. Uh, I, you know, I can't tell you when I had my first drink of alcohol. Uh, I was way too little to remember that. I don't have the memory that Kirby has. I can tell you that the only picture I have of me and my, my maternal grandfather is I'm about this high in this funky little dress they put me in. I don't know where that came from. Um, and he handed me a beer. You know, um, I grew up sipping beers. Uh, my father was not an alcoholic. My mother was not an alcoholic. They absolutely had the had the, uh, the the disease of addiction, but it wasn't about alcohol and it wasn't about drugs. Um, you know, once in a while he'd say, "Hey, go get me a beer out of the refrigerator," and if we got to be the ones to go get it, we were allowed to take a sip or two. And and you know, when it got when it was my turn and it got back to him, it was at least half empty. And we didn't have that big of a house, so <laughs> it was just a few steps, you know. So I really started abusing substances. Uh, I'm duly addicted. Uh, I'm addicted to anything. If it makes me feel better, if it makes me see funny colors, uh, if it makes me warm and fuzzy, I'll take it, drink it, swallow it. The only thing I didn't do was, was IV drugs, because I'm, I've had these everywhere, but I'm afraid of needles. Does that make sense to y'all? 
but really that kicked in about the age of 11. Um, I, I, I grew up in Bakersfield, and for those of you that are familiar with Bakersfield, there's not much to do down there now, and there certainly wasn't 40 years ago. Uh, you either went to a few bars, or you went to church, and most of us did both. You know, um, you go out and rip a good one on Saturday night and go to church on Sunday. You know, so um, by the time I reached seventh grade, uh, I was doing a lot of drinking, kitchen school, drinking in this little alleyway that we used to go hide in, and uh, doing some drugs. Uh, I started smoking dope when I was eleven. Um, I guess that was probably the big defining year of my life. And, um, you know, at some point in there, you know, if I was old enough and mature enough to recognize, you know, they talk about those light bulbs that go off or we stay in the program, that big red flag, you know. There were, looking back on it, there was a few that maybe had I been old enough I could have paid attention to, you know. Um, my father bought his business. He was a uh, diesel repair road service man. And uh, in order for my mother to communicate with him, he put in CB radios. And if any of y'all are familiar with that, when you got a CB radio, you got to pick out yourself a handle, which is, in my world today, we call it a road name. And uh, so my mother's going, well, I think you ought to be the nugget. I'm going to be called the pusher. You know, because at that time in my life, a pusher was a drug dealer. And that fascinated me. The whole world of alcohol and, and drug use and going to the bar and having lots of cash and all that stuff just fascinated me, man. I thought, I thought if I could get there, I made it. I made something of myself, you know? I guess my father's life ambitions were better than mine. Um, so, very early on, I, I was heading there, and uh, I got into high school. I had an older brother. He was also heading there. He taught me how to really get school and have a good time. Uh, I managed to get my, myself kicked out of my freshman year of high school, not only out of school, but out of the entire district. Uh, I had to go to another district, and I missed the whole first half, or the whole first semester. It didn't bother me. You know, that stuff, none of that stuff bothered me. Um, I was growing up different, you know, and at that time, I was not accepted in life. I was, I was horrible. That's what I heard on TV, that's what I heard from church, that's what I heard from some family members. I never heard it from my mom and dad, I have to say. Um, you know, I was a deviant, I was a, I was a sexual offender, uh, I was all these things just as a girl, you know, and uh, I just couldn't get past hanging out, making somebody's dinner, and running them a bath at the end of the day. Not, not for me either, you know. Um, so, you know, I spent my high school, I found my little niche in high school, which, you know, I hung out with the stoners, and that's what we did. We drank a lot. We smoked as much as we could. We did school as much as we could. Um, 
So I finally told her at one point that I was going to stop drinking because uh, I realized that when I went into the bathroom, my urine smelled like Miller Lite. And uh, I swear to God it did. Swear to God. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, she beat the hell out of me for that decision, if I remember right. Uh, I, I never did her back. I, you know, my, I was brought up with, you don't do that. So I just let her do it. She was pretty pissed off over it. So I stayed a couple more months. And, and right around my 21st birthday, my parents came out. And it's the only time my father ever told me he loved me. And it was, uh, he was back in the car and they were getting ready to leave. And he kind of mumbled something like, you know, well, well we love you when you come home. And I barely heard it. And my mother and I both just went, you hear that? And I thought, he loves me now, you know? Even if I'm a queer, he loves me. So, uh, back to Bakersfield I went, uh, with my girlfriend, who my mother said, don't bring anybody but you, which, why should I listen to that? I never listened to her for the last 21 years. And, uh, so I showed up there, uh, I went through, um, very hard times with my family. Um, it was hard. It was hard for them. My family, um, um, they didn't understand me. And I didn't understand why they didn't understand and accept me. And uh, my father, you know, the only thing he told me is you're not sick in the head to knock off your shit. That was perfect. And uh, my mother would say, are you still that way? <laughs> what way is that, Mom? You know, no. And, and, you know, I was so angry at her, I would just pop it until I made her say it. And there was just a lot of anger going on. And, and uh, it took a couple of years, and then started getting okay with that part of my life, you know. And... Um, and I think the, the person I was with at the time helped a lot. They really they cared for her. And she had a couple of kids. And my parents are actually their own grandparents, they know. So um, it helped a lot. Well, then she was limiting my drinking and certainly limited any of my drug addictions. So uh, she didn't let me smoke up. She didn't let me take anything. She wouldn't let me, let me snort any animal nitrate. She wouldn't let me do any of that fun shit that I like to do when we went out. So therefore, I don't want to be with you anymore. So I started this whole series of a pattern where you hook up, and no matter what type of person that was, I would see something in that person that became the entire being of the person that I wanted to be with. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys. And I tried very, very hard to make that person with that one little small thing I saw become this person with everything that I wanted in a partner and a mate. I wanted the longevity that my grandparents and my parents had. Uh, I wanted I wanted the shit you saw on TV. I wanted Ozzy and Harriet. You know, uh, my parents are great parents, but we certainly were not issue free in my house. We had a lot of dysfunction going on. Um, they did not, I never, I only heard my father tell my mother he loved her once, and that was when he was drunk. And I never heard my mother say it until just before he died. 
but I know today they loved each other a lot. And I guess I knew that back then, and, and that's what I wanted. And, and I wanted a good life. I wanted a house. I wanted all those things that made you think like you've made it in, in the world today. Um, I wanted a good retirement. Uh, I wanted a Harley. I want, I want, I want everything on the outside. I figured if I got all these things and I got that perfect mate and all this stuff, I could create that and make me happy. And I would be accepted because throughout all this time, I still knew that I felt different inside and I absolutely was different on the outside. You know, um, I'm like a walking billboard. I've been, as I came here, just like this forever. I don't know how to be in the closet. I didn't know how to be something I wasn't. It was real difficult for me. And um, I got teased a lot. I got in a lot of fights. Um, you know, put the fact on that, you know, I was queer. I was awful fat. So that's a double whammy. You know, they talk about bullies. They, they, they got nothing on what we grew up with. So, um, well, they got guns now. Um, I just kept drinking through it and going through relationships. Basically, that's how it went. You know, you tell me you're leaving me at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I quite frankly didn't give a fuck because by 6 o'clock the bar opened and at 6.30 I'd have a new one. You know, these guys are here that, that, that have known me for a year, a few years, my friends in the background can tell you that it was, you know, the flavor of the year. At least there was a new person. Quit looking at me, watch. There was a new person. She's talking about folks down there. Um, sometimes it was flavor of the month. Uh, I reaped a lot of damage because those people didn't deserve what I gave them. You know, because I made promises too, and they had their own dreams too. And what I gave them was an out of control drunken drug addict. That I wanted all this stuff to happen, but I wasn't willing to do the work for it. I just wanted it for some reason. I just thought it was going to come to me. I just figured that if I actually lived past 30, I wouldn't need that retirement because somehow it would come to me, you know. Uh, well, I figured it would come to me in my inheritance. Uh, that didn't happen either, by the way. And, uh, flip the stock market. And, uh, so, oh, I was a thief. I left that part out. Uh, well, I thought there was a blackout. I didn't realize I was a blackout until I was about 10 years sober. Uh, but I was safe. And I stole primarily from my parents' business. Um, my father, he would have tons of cash in his pocket because he dealt primarily in cash when he'd go out and fix a truck or do whatever. My mother would too. Um, my brothers were used to, so we learned how to get into the space. We learned how to get into the money box. We were early, and this was in high school. So, you know, my dad never changed the combination of things. He never changed the box. He never changed the space. Um, you know, I, could, I, I went into their house one time. I was 20, right before I got sober, 26, 27. And I walked into the room, and I just happened to hit the handle on the safe, and it popped open, and I cool. And I open up the little money box, and here's an envelope, and it's like, ah, sick, man. I'm like, fucking, I'm bored, you know? 
grabbed it, threw the door shut, out the house I went. And uh, I go back to my house, which by the way was one of their houses that I lived in that I never paid rent for. Um, I told you I was the baby. Um, and I pulled this envelope out of my pocket, and in my father's handwriting it said mothers on it, which means it was my grandparents' it was money. There was ten thousand dollars in that envelope, and uh, I said, oh, "Fuck! I can't steal from my grandma and grandpa." So I drove back out to my mom and dad's house, got went back in the house, and the door on the safe I couldn't get it back open. So at that point, well, what do I do? I'm fucked now. I might as well spend it. Right? Because I couldn't tell them that I took it out with the intent of stealing it. And so, I don't know, about three days, I have no idea where that money went. No idea what happened to it. I know I had a hell of a party. And, uh, absolutely nothing for it. So it didn't even have a pair of shoes to show for it. It went to the bar, it went up my nose. I was doing a lot of prank at that time. And, uh, Bought some good weed, bought a few kegs, a couple of bottles of Jack Daniels. Yeah, the essentials of life. And uh, then I got to where, oh, then they gave, then I went to work for them. So now I'm living in one of their houses, not paying rent, and I'm living, and then I'm working for them. Uh, not really doing much. I'd kind of show up for work, and I'd have to maybe go out and get my grandma and take her to the doctor's office, or. Uh, you know, maybe sweep the floor or the shop or something. Nothing strenuous. And uh, so we got paid on Mondays. She would never pay us on Fridays if she didn't want us to send our checks during the weekend. So we got paid on Mondays, and I'd go in and, and to my sister-in-law, who also worked there, and said, here, I want to cash my check. So they'd cash the check out of the box. And then when everybody else went to lunch, I'd go in and steal my check back out, and I'd black over the deposits of the bonus thing, and then I'd take it down to the store and cash it in. Good, huh? Yeah. And uh, I would also take checks out of the the check register, sign my mother's name to them, $800,000, $900,000. You know, back then, not a lot of money. Take it down to a little, little liquor store, cash it. Now I got my check twice, another grand on top of it. I was set, you know, for the week. And uh, so one day, Skipping ahead of quite a few years here. One day, this guy from the little liquor store called, uh, called the shop, asked my dad, hey, you know, you know, this person's been in, I don't know, four or five weeks in a row with these checks for six, eight thousand dollars. Are you guys writing me? Well, my dad never wrote a check. It was all my mom. You know, he, the bank, when he retired and took in his first social security check, wouldn't take it because it didn't look like his signature on all the cards. You know, so he says, well, hell, I don't know why she's giving her all that money. I'll have to call you back. Well, then he calls down to the house, bitching at my mom, why the hell are you giving her all this money? I'm sorry, I didn't give her shit. So she called me at the bar that night, because that's the only place she knew for certain I would be. Tells me I want you to come out here. And, you know, these three in the back could tell you, or at least two in the back could tell you, I'm afraid of my mom. You know, and uh, when she's mad, it's a scary woman. And uh, she would hit you with things. The butcher knives, passes, didn't matter. And uh, so I wouldn't go. I said, well, yeah, you know, yeah. But I took my, my friends with me, you know. 
because I wasn't going to let her make me stay there. Because I knew I was in trouble and I knew why. I knew it, you know? And uh, so I'm out there and she's going blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, I did it. Why'd you do it? Well, you know, Mom, I'm a dope I'm an alcoholic. I don't make enough. You know, I wasn't working for them. I was working for somebody else at that time. And I said, I'll make enough money for you to, to pay for all that. <laughs> Why not? You don't pay any rent. All right. It's just ain't enough, you know. However, there's this 800 number at work, Mom. And I promise, come Monday when I go back to work, I'll call. Pretty cool. It's got me out of this one. Because I'm a finagler. Right? No, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a dope. I'm a thief. And I'm a finagler. And, uh... So I left and went back to the bar because we were in my friend's car. I got to go. No. We were in my car and I had to take my friend back because I'm not stupid. And um, so anyway, I got, I got to work and I did as I promised I would do. And I called this number and my company sent me to rehab for a 28-day rehab. It cost me $10,000 uh, for me to learn that I can go to meetings for free. <laughs> yep. Uh, my mother took me there. I had a big old fatty world smoking it on the way with a good tall boy's Budweiser. And uh, I walked in and I said, look, I'm good. I'm good with drinking and I'm good with smoking dope. I just need you to teach me how not to be cranked when I'm drinking and smoking dope. I figured they're supposed to be experts. They could just teach me how to do that, right? They laughed at me and said, yeah, well, why don't you just hang out? So I hung out, and, and you know, the reality is, is I wasn't ready. Um, so besides learning that I could go to meetings for free, I got a seed planted. And I got out of rehab, and by then they had taken my house away that I wasn't paying rent on. And uh, moved all my furniture somewhere, I don't remember where it was. Uh, and I was not going to live with my parents at 28 years old and under those, because of all that. So I moved in with my dealer. I thought that was a good place to go because that's where all my friends were. You know, I didn't hear that part in all those meetings I went to in that 28 days that I needed to change my lifestyle. I didn't hear that I needed to change the people I hung out with. Uh, so I went back there and quite frankly, I stayed, I stayed clean there for seven months. But I started drinking in 15 days. And just as simple as that, I walked into a 7-Eleven, get a pack of cigarettes, looked over, there was a display of Budweiser Tall Boys, and said, mm, those look good, snatched them, bought them, out the door I went, and I was on a run. So that was somewhere around Halloween. And on the... 19th of January, I met this girl. And I was between flavor of the month. And I'd met her actually, I guess, one or two times before that at somebody's house or I think it was at a dealer's house or something. And my other buddy said, now that one's mine. I said, fine, take her out there. So I didn't pay much attention to her. But, you know, she came in and she said, hey, do you remember me? I said, yeah. She said, well, how you doing? I said, fine. You want to go try to smoke some dope? Sure. Well, she didn't do any of that stuff, you know? So we went out, came back in, and I got plastered that night like I normally do. And uh, she went home and woke up next morning, and we decided we were in love. That's how fast it happens in my world. Swear, swear. And uh, she says, well, I have this six-year-old kid. I said, well, you know, we're going to put this together because we're in love. Um, 
I got to figure out something because I honestly do not believe in doing dope for this. And uh, I, I wouldn't have it. So I told her, I said, well, you know, I've kind of been going to these meetings off and on now. And um, I kind of think I have a way to stop doing that so it's not around your kid, but I'm probably going to need your support in that. So are you willing to do that? She says, are you willing to tell me your real name? <laughs> so I told her my real name. She said, okay. And um, I don't know, I think the next day we went to a softball game. I got drunk again. And then um, that Sunday I went to a women's meeting. And uh, on the 22nd of January was the last. No, 21st I got drunk. Because uh, my bar was shutting down, so I had to give it a good farewell. And uh, I remember that last night, and, and this is the most important part of my war stories is, um, I remember it was very cold, and I was outside in the street, in the middle of the street, in front of the bar, and I had a quarter Jack Daniels from behind the bar, and I was trying to drink it, and every time I up-tipped it, and I'd get it swallowed, it would automatically come up. And that's how I drink that entire trip to Jack Daniels. Uh, I still cannot smell Jack Daniels today because I will upset in a heartbeat. But uh, that was my last night of drinking. I woke up the next morning on the 22nd. I went to a meeting that night and I told her my real name and she supported me through that during the duration of our relationship. And uh, I've been sober ever since. So uh, I can't tell you I was ready. I can tell you that for that six-year-old kid, I needed to change because I wasn't going to have that around him. So I guess he was the person that God brought me to get me to where I'm at tonight. So um, I spent about two, three months being miserable. Miserable. Uh, oh, back to that thing between, uh, between uh, Halloween and the 19th, 20th, so of January. I can tell you that I remember about four and a half minutes. And I was on a total binge, total blackout. That is all those months. Um, so I got there, I started doing meetings again. They kept telling me, keep coming back, it gets better, keep coming back if you want to be happy, keep coming back, keep coming back until I was so fucking sick of her, keep coming back and I wanted to kill them. And because uh, I wasn't getting any happier. In fact, I was getting miserable. And I remember sitting in a meeting and, you know, talking to a God that I really didn't understand. I used to call my God Junior because um, I didn't think he had done a whole lot for me in my life and I wasn't going to give him any superiority above me, so he was a junior. So I was talking to Junior. And I said, Junior, you know, if anything about these people is true and I'm supposed to get happier here, you know, I need to come because I, I didn't get sober to be fucking miserable. Straight up, you know. And that was at a Friday night CA meeting. That was Cocaine Anonymous meeting. That, that was my home group in Bakersfield at that time. And on Saturday, in walk, at my house, Saturday morning, and walked these guys. It was uh, Redneck Mike, Easy Mike and Woody Bell and they opened my door like didn't even knock it was like they paid my rent you know and uh, uh, that was another house I was living in without paying rent by the way and 
I'm the baby. And uh, uh, Redneck sat down on my chair and he picked up my guitar, and, which was a big kid no-no, and started playing it. And I'm looking at him like, who the fuck do you think you are? You know? And he says, uh, you know, Farrell, when are you going to get your shit together and come right with it? I don't know. I don't know. I had a little 750 Honda stopper. You know? It certainly was not going to keep up with their Harleys. You know? And it was a Honda. And uh, so my girlfriend, who probably supported me through all this, was back there going, I think she can go tomorrow. And, I, you know, looking back on it, I think she set me up. I really did. And I, cause I was making her, I was so miserable, I was making her miserable. So, um, I said, well, you know, I guess I can go for a little clip tomorrow. Sorry. And uh, he says, okay, be at my house tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock with a full tank of gas. And I said, it's 7 o'clock on a Sunday? What the hell? But, you know, my sponsor kept telling me, Barry, you do anything you need to do for your sobriety, and it's going to happen for you, I promise. I kept getting all these damn promises along with those keep coming back. And I wanted to show the people with the promises too by then, including my sponsor. And, uh, all right, I'll go there. Well, they neglected to tell me that we were coming to Pisidia. And they neglected to tell me that we were coming to a business meeting of, of the chapter, which is, was a famous over motor driving club. And they neglected to tell me that I guess Zitter, and she was my girlfriend at the time, had actually set it up that I was supposed to join this club. So we're sitting there through this boring ass business thing, and uh, well, this isn't a whole lot of fun, but at least I got a ride out of it, you know. And uh, so towards the end of the meeting, it's the prospect report. Anybody wants to prospect? And Mike just kind of reached out and grabbed me and said, she does. What did I do? Sydney's over there going, mm-hmm. Well, okay. Sure, why not? And uh, how much does this cost? And I'm looking at her and said, can we afford, can we afford this? You know, because I was a newcomer. We were poor. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so they took me out in the parking lot and they showed me right next spot and they said, see that back tire? Mm-hmm. Well, wherever it goes for the next six months, you go. Okay. I'm still looking at her like, can we afford this? Mm-hmm. And uh, so you know what? That was the best six months of my life, man. And uh, those guys taught me that I didn't have to be miserable and cry. They taught me that although it's a painful process to let go of my old HomePod, right, French forever, um, it can be done. And making new friends in this program can be a lot of fun. Uh, they taught me I didn't have to be a thief again. They taught me integrity. They taught me that I could love somebody and somebody could love me back without wanting something from me. They taught me that when my phone rang and I picked it up and they said, hey Bear, how you doing? They weren't concerned with whether I had alcohol, dope, money, gas, a car, the money to put the gas in the car to go get the drugs and the alcohol. That's what they taught me. They taught me that me standing right here, I'm no longer different. As long as I am honest, with you, you'll be honest with me. And that makes us the same. And those men, those straight men, gave me my life back. 
And before they walked into my door that Saturday morning, I really didn't give a shit whether I lived or died. I really was concerned about that retirement past 30, figured somebody would come along somehow, because I really didn't expect to be alive after 30. I was doing some crazy shit out there. And it didn't matter. I didn't have any kind of conscious relationship with a God. The God that I knew was sending me to hell. Ask the preacher. Right? The God that I knew had brought nothing but pain to my life. And the God that I knew certainly could not love some big, fat, bush queer. That's the God that I knew when those men walked into my house. And what they showed me that first six months is that no matter where I went with them, I was accepted, I was hugged, and I was loved. Just for who I am standing right here before you. Because I'm still that big, fat, bush queer. Right? And I'm proud to be that person today. I'm proud of who I am today. Um, I made a decision last week that I'm retiring from my club, which is a spinoff of this chapter when it folded in 1993 or something. And I put 24 years into the Silver Motorcycle, trying to deliver that same message. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to deliver that same message to a few people. And that's all I wanted to do in this program, is deliver that message. And show people that you don't have to get sober and be miserable. You don't have to get off the bar stool and be, and not be able to dance. You know? I can't show you how to shoot pool because I've never learned how to shoot pool again since I've been sober. Um, it took me a little while to learn how to drive again because I, you know, I started 11. I learned to do all that shit loaded. Um, it's wonderful, man. I have a good time. Uh, today, I got that house. I have... I finally learned at 12 years of sobriety how to have a decent relationship. Because that first 10, 11 years, it was like that flavor of the year a month again. I didn't quite know how to do it. Um, I, I, I have a relationship of 13 years. I got a job I've been at 17 years, surprisingly enough. Um, I got my Harley, you know? And one of those guys is dead. And I often, often, when we're riding down the road, take a redneck mic and say, dude, what do you think? Would you be proud of me today? And uh, I think you would be. Um, I can tell you that you're here around the rooms. I don't know how many people are here, just a few years, how many here, a bunch of years. It doesn't matter. But you know, you're here around the room. Uh, go to meetings. Get a sponsor. Read the book. Everything Kurt told you to do. That's not how I did it. I've had two sponsors. I haven't had a sponsor in years. And I'm not telling you that because I'm not proud of it. I'm telling you that because I need to put that out there. Um, I've worked through the steps twice. I'm, probably, I'm due for another one. Kurt, Kurt kind of let me know that last week. 
Those three in the back are my kippers classes right now. And they're very good at, at pulling my covers. Um, I would not suggest to do it the way I did it over the years. But, you know, they tell you when you come in that you're unique and every program is unique, and I guess mine was unique. I have not read the book front cover because when I sit down and read, I go to sleep. But I figure in 24 years I've gone to enough meetings I've probably heard every single word in this book. I pay attention. It doesn't look like it because I'll be back there playing on my phone playing again. Doing that makes me focus on what I'm hearing. If I don't do that, they'll tell you I'm cross-talking horribly. And uh, making smart-ass remarks or whatever. Um, I can tell you if you listen to those people saying, keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back, that no matter how much you want to choke them, please keep coming back. That's right. And no matter how much they tell you they love you, believe them because they do. And if you really want a different life, and I'm not going to tell you it's all, you know, peaches and cream. If you want that, what do they call it, that pink cloud? Go down here to the Harley shop, get your pair of 595 KDs that are rose colored. You can have rose colored glasses anytime you want. It'll make your life better. But that's not guaranteed. Your pink cloud is going to bust someday. And when it does, it's going to fall really hard on your ass. And it's going to hurt. And it's these people in this room that are going to get you through it. It's not going to be your wife, your mother, your father, your grandfather, your distant cousin, and yonkers. It's going to be these people right here in this room. Reach out to them. Get the phone numbers. Get a fucking sponsor. Please. Don't, don't do it alone. And if what it says TV, don't do this at home. Yeah, don't, don't do me at home. And, uh, you know, just keep coming to me. The program changed. When I got here, the, the, the room was filled with smoke, like from the ceiling down to about right here. And uh, they served coffee at the tables, and they didn't have cool little styrofoam paper cups. And I was told to sit down, shut the fuck up, come to meetings in 90, 90 meetings in 90 days. And when the meeting's over, empty the ashtrays and wash the coffee cups. Well, don't you think that's kind of like running that bathtub? water and cooking that dinner I was worried about earlier? What's to me? But you know what? After those guys got done showing me what I could have, I wash coffee cups every night. And I'll get the ashtrays every night and I'll do it today. And I don't even drink coffee anymore. I drink it. You know? I will do whatever it takes today to keep my sobriety. It's not worth a woman, it's not worth a friend, it's not worth a family member, it's not worth a stranger, it's not worth another fellow of Alcoholics Anonymous. My best friends are sitting right there, and if they go out and get drunk, I will be there to get them home and to try to get them back here, but I will not go sit and drink with them because then I will be drunk. I love them, but then I'm going to have to love them from afar. You know, you've got to set boundaries. That's a boundary. You know, so if you're miserable and you got a lot of time, maybe you ought to go get another sponsor, like Kirby said, and uh, maybe work stuff like Kirby said. And um, if you're new and you're miserable, keep coming back because we love you. You can show me after me if you want. Um, if you can, get yourself a bike. 
There's a lot of people out there. Hey, it helps, man. That's, that's, you know what? I gotta tell you, there's a lot of times over the years that when I got really sitting in my shit, the reason I didn't drink is because I could not imagine taking my colors. And at the time, Doc Davidson, a lot of people here know Doc from years ago. Doc Davidson was my national president, and I could not imagine taking that those colors off and handing them back to Doc and say, "Brother, I drank." And today I'm president of our club. And I cannot imagine taking my colors off and handing them to Kurt. Shut up, Nancy. Or giving it to Nancy. That means I don't have a vote. <laughs> and Nancy's really the boss. Um, I can't I can imagine taking my colors off and handing them to those guys that had drank. So sometimes it's just something simple as that that will keep you sober. Use every tool that they give you here. Every tool you can find. If you come up with an idea that works out here at your local Starbucks, cool. But make sure that you bring it back to these meetings on a regular basis. So, anyway, you guys, thank you so much uh, for having me and and enduring me for the last few minutes. Rick, thank you so much for inviting me and my buddies for coming down with me. And I love you guys. And thank you absolutely for being here. For me. Sure.